Good morning, church family. My name is Mike. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike, and I'm one of the elders here at Pillar Jacksonville. Today we are we are continuing our book, um, sorry, our study in the book of Judges, and as we continue, we find ourselves uh, landing in Judges chapter 10. Uh, last week, um, J.D. had started in 9 and finished in the first few verses of chapter 10, but we'll go through uh, chapter 10 um, starting in uh, verse 6 and continuing on into Judges chapter 12, verse 15. So just so you're aware, so it's, it's just about all of chapter 10, all of chapter 11, and then all of chapter 12. So sit down, buckle up, and uh, we're in for a ride here. Excuse me. So there's a lot to cover in the text today, a real lot to cover. And I'm like, wow, how, how are we going to do that? You know, this, do I really read all of that? And the answer, of course, is there's no way. We would be here until next weekend uh, to go through that and also to actually um, elaborate on that. So what I'm going to do is similar to what J.D. had done last week is just summarize. We'll go through the chapters one by one, and I'm going to summarize and pull a point out of each of the chapters uh, that we go through. So last week, uh, J.D. Um, again preached from chapter 9 with a sermon titled Destruction from Within and Hope Without. Uh, Hope from Without, excuse me. We see a bit more of that as our study continues. Um, Israel's worst enemy at times, as he explained last week, is in fact Israel. And last week we saw fighting amongst family, right? Brother against brother. And this week we're going to see the same towards the end of our sermon, uh, my sermon, um, as it's tribe against tribe. Uh, so this week's sermon, today's sermon is, uh, again, it's going to begin much the same way the last four sermons have begun. And that is the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So before we begin, let me go ahead and pray for us, if I may. Heavenly Father, Father, you, you are in control of all things. And Father, I know that we know that, but sometimes, sometimes we forget, Father. We don't know that so much in our, in our heart as we do in our heads. And Father, I just pray as we go through the text today, Father, that, that your word, your message speaks clearly, Father, that, uh, that you would just uh, guide me in what I say. Father, and, and just open the ears, all of our ears, Father, the impact for everyone here, myself included, Lord God, that we would be changed by your word, Father, that we would come to know you better, and Father, we would be armed to be able to make you known all the better as well. Father, I pray for this time that we have. Thankful for your son. Amen. So again, keeping in mind what the main idea of Judges is, uh, and it's the overall theme across the whole book in that it's in the midst of our sinful idolatry, trust God's covenant faithfulness for eternal redemption. And in the midst of our sinful idolatry, trust God's covenant faithfulness for eternal redemption. And again, we have three chapters that we need to get through. So I'm going to highlight the first uh, and then continue on. I think most of the meat we're going to find in chapter 11, the, the middle section, and finally finish off with the implications from chapter 12. Um, you know, I like to think of myself as a, as a pretty humble man. Uh, as a matter of fact, I take great pride in how humble I am, right? It's, uh, 
No, it's, it's, we're seeing, you know, the humbleness really, as we're going to see, hopefully we'll see that in, in the text as we come through today. We didn't see that last week, right? We saw, we saw a man who tried to take over, to take control, who was trying to lead Israel on its destiny. Um, you know, last week in the story of Abimelech and also the story of Gael, uh, together, Abimelech was evil and Gael was all talk. And one of the points of this was, of course, last week, to choose your leaders wisely with the emphasis on character over gifts, on characters over confidence. And today we'll see a man who does not brag about his own abilities or those around him, but he gives full credit where it is due, and that is to God. He recognizes who is in control and who determines the outcome. We have to ask ourselves, do we do that? Do we recognize who really is in control and who determines the outcomes? And we may say that we do in our heads, but who are we putting confidence in? God or in our own ability? Do we really try and take charge because we don't think God at times knows what he's doing? You know, as I've wrestled with these chapters from some time now, I think the key takeaway as I've gone through these three chapters is this. Faith is played out in obedience, not works. Faith is played out in obedience, not works. My, my sermon title in and of itself is, There is Nowhere Else to Go for True Salvation. And I think you'll find that in the text as well, very easily. So I have three points that I'm going to make today out of the text, and I'll give those as we continue on through it. So first of all is the overview from chapter 10. J.D. covered, of course, the first uh, four or five verses in chapter 10 last week. His sermon ended with Jer the Gileadite, who judged Israel for 22 years, had 30 sons who had 30 donkeys, and they were in the land of Gilead. And if you don't know, Gilead is in a mountainous region. It's actually a very nice region. Gilead is in the mountainous region on the eastern side of the Jordan River. And of course, today's sermon picks up in this region. Once again, we see that while Israel has judges, Israel does really well. Right? I remember uh, a time in my past when I was teaching, and there's always the closer you are to authority, the more likely you are to behave. Think about that when the police officer is right behind you on the road as you're coming down, right? Hands are 10 and 12, seatbelts on, doing the speed limit. Man, we all get a little nervous. We want to make sure we're doing exactly what we should do. But when there are no judges, how does Israel react? So as we go back to the beginning of, uh, of, of judges, though, I want to think about the big picture that we're seeing. Why is Israel constantly in this state of pushing God away. And in Judges chapter 1, if you remember, Brian gave that overview some time ago, and then it was preached on the following week. We see a couple of the tribes of Israel drive out the inhabitants, as God had commanded them to do. But it was also recorded that most of the tribes of Israel failed to do that. And then in Judges chapter 2, it's recorded, God says, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give your fathers. I said I will never break my covenant with you 
and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But what is this that you have done? You have not obeyed my voice. So now I say to you, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. So let me ask, did God make the inhabitants thorns? No, he didn't. Did God make their gods be a snare to Israel? No, he did not. But he knew that this is what would happen. This is why he told them, do this. And when they didn't, he said, this is what's going to happen now. They will become a snare to you. They will become thorns to you. And that's what we see happening over and over again. God knew this would happen. So once again in chapter 10, we see Israel, when they're left to their own accord, without a judge, they're turning to the world around them. You know, this doesn't happen in a day or in a week or in a month. It doesn't happen that fast. But it happens over period of time gradually and they get farther and farther away so how far do they really go and that's where our reading actually begins today in verse 6 of chapter 10 it says the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth we've heard that before but they went further and it says they served the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve them. They are just spiraling worse and worse and worse. They are getting farther and farther away. And what God said would happen actually happened. Israel was snared by the gods of the people that they did not drive out. So what happened to Israel? Why weren't they happy? We always have that, is the grass really greener on the other side of the fence? And they thought so, but they became ensnared, and then they were oppressed for 18 years. And under this oppression, once more, they said to God, they cried out to God, and they said, please save us. Please save us. We're tired of this oppression, right, in our own sin. We get caught up in our own sin, and we're like, oh, God, I'm sorry. Just save me. This time, I mean it, and then it happens again. This time, I really, really mean it, and then I really, really, really mean it, and it keeps going, right? At what point do we stop? At what point do we finally submit? So again, once again, Israel is crying out. And in verses 10 to 13 of this chapter, God reminds Israel how many times he has already saved them. And yet they continue to turn to the world around them. And he finally says in verse 14, go and cry out to the other gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Go cry out to them. Wow. Wow. How many of, of us as parents, boy, I can remember, you know, how many times you're trying to teach your kids certain lessons. You're like, man, will they never listen, right? How many times do I have to tell them? I don't know if you've ever had to say that to anyone. 
I have said that a number of times, and even at times said, forget it, I give up. All right? Of course, I never really gave up, and God does not give up either. Right? He's like, you know what, I'm not going to save you, but he does save them. He does deliver them because he also said he would never forget his covenant with them. But here he is, he told Israel, he said, no, you know what, you go serve those other gods. But what did Israel do? And the text tells us this. They repented. They turned from their ways. They put away the foreign gods and they served the Lord. Why didn't Israel turn to the other gods? Because they knew. They knew, just as our title says, they really knew that there's only salvation through the one true God. That was true for Israel, and that is true for us. There is salvation only through the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true God. And that is the point of my first sermon. My first, I'm sorry, the point, first point for my sermon, it is when it seems God is quiet, when it seems God is quiet, remain faithful and obedient. When it seems God is quiet, remain faithful and obedient. So God has now told Israel, like, you know what, why don't you go serve these other gods? Why don't you see if they save you? But they know in their hearts that these other gods are not going to save them. They know that only God will save them. And they do what God told them to do from the beginning. They became, they put aside these other gods, and they became obedient, and they only worshipped the one true God. Do we know that, though? Do we really know? Do we really depend on God that much? Do we really... You know, we look at the world today and, and all the stuff that's going on around us, all the excitement, right? Why did they follow after these other ones? Look what was going on, man. They are having a good time. I want to have a good time. Why can't I have a good time? Right? But none of the stuff that's going on in the world around us is going to save us. Like Israel, the world around them was a snare, and the world around us is a snare as well. It won't save us, and it may look like fun and exciting, but it leads to death and not to salvation. So in light of their obedience, as you continue to read in the chapter, it says, in light of their obedience, God heard their, mo their moanings, and it says in verse 16, and God became impatient over the misery, the misery excuse me, of Israel. You know, I think for us, you know, why does Israel again keep, keep walking away? Well, they lose that judge, and it doesn't take that long. It takes some time, right? But I think this is part of the problem with not regularly meeting as far as church goes, right? When we stop meeting with church, we, start, we stop having this, this accountability. Now, we have the Lord's Supper here every week, and every week we fence that table about who should come up. And it keeps us in line. It's like, I mean, as we go through the work and we make... Through the weeks, excuse me, we know we're tempted with things. I know for myself, like, you know what? No, I want to go to God with a clear conscience. I, I want what God wants for me. And this holds us accountable. You know, there is danger when we don't have accountability with brothers and sisters, and we get that in church. We get accountability. What's going on? 
If we just come in and we sit in the back pew and then we just, no, no offense to people in the back pew, but we just want to slide in at the last minute and slide out and I don't want to really have accountability, then we're missing the whole purpose of church. We come to church to learn, to make Jesus known and to make him known, but it also helps us in our walk. You know, Scripture tells us a cord of three strand is not easily broken. Well, what does that mean? It's like, man, when we have a, a, a member who's weak, we surround that member with other members who are stronger, who may be able to help that person in their times of challenge. Sometimes we need the help. Sometimes we are the help. That is why we are the church. That is why we need to continue to come together. We need the strength of others, and others need our strength as well. Israel keeps wandering away from God, the one true God, the one God that can save us. And we're different how. Really, how different are we? There's that one song that, boy, I tell you, it's been going in my head all week. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's us. Why do we do that? Because we lose our focus. We start getting caught up in the world around us. So again, we have salvation only through the one true God. At the end of chapter 10, we see the Amorites lining up for battle against Israel in Gilead. And in response, Israel comes together in Mizpah, which is just northeast of Gilead. And it ends with Israel asking the question, who will lead us into battle? We're gathering our men, but who's going to lead us? There is no leader. But God has a plan. And that brings us into chapter 11. In chapter 11 of Judges, we're introduced to this new character, a man by the name of Jephthah. Now, Jephthah was a Gileadite and a mighty warrior, it tells us. He was the son, however, of a prostitute. His father was Gilead. Gilead had a wife who bore him other sons. And as these sons got older, they drove out Jephthah because they didn't want him having any inheritance. So, so there are wives we read about in Scripture, and then there are concubines. And the sons of the concubines still have, you know, again, it's not God's big plan, but they still had some rights. But this was the son of a prostitute who had no rights. So the story tells us, as we continue reading in chapter 11, that Jephthah fled. You know, and it seems that God has this habit of raising leaders that are nobodies. You know, I don't think that God really tends to look at anybody's resume, does he? He doesn't look and say, hey, you went to the Jerusalem School of Law and you graduated first in your class as he's picking up for leaders, does he? Or tell me about the time that you led the Egyptian Chronicle and turned their fiscal year around, right? He's not looking for any of that. What is God looking for when he raises up a leader? 
We talked about that, and that's why I had Jonathan read from 1 Samuel. Who were the deliverers? There were folks like Gideon and Jephthah and David. Even we think about what was Jesus' beginning? That's not what God is looking for. He's not looking for impressive resumes. But that's where we focus our time on. What is he looking for? J.D. talked a little bit about it yesterday, or last week, excuse me. He talked about character. He's looking at the heart. He's looking for faith. Where is our faith? From 1 Samuel, we read, Samuel is reminding Israel how God has continually delivered them and he mentions that some of those that he has used to deliver them, he, some of those, I'm sorry, he mentioned that used to deliver them. He mentions Moses and Aaron, Jerobel, Barak, as well as Jephthah and Samuel. And what is it that these men all had? They had faith. Is that really what God was looking for? I really debated as I was looking. It's like, what do I want to have for the first reading? Do I want to have where Jephthah is mentioned in 1 Samuel as a deliverer? Or I want to go to Hebrews. And in Hebrews, we can read in Hebrews chapter 11, actually, verses 32 to 34, it says, And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me of, let me see if you know any of these names, Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, of Jephthah, of David and Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. So what was the ingredient? What was the common thing they had? It was faith. They didn't have impressive resumes. Far from it, they had faith. Again, taking a closer look at Jephthah. He was a son of Gilead, but his mother was a prostitute. He had no rights. He had no status. His father had other sons, and they drove him out. He ended up, as you read in the chapter, he ended up and fled, and he fled into the wilderness, and he actually had these worthless fellows hang around with him and he became a mighty warrior. God started using him. He was, as a matter of fact, as I was researching this, he was what some would call an ancient day Robin Hood type character. So here are the Ammonites making war against Israel in Gilead, and the elders in the town are frantically trying to find who will lead us into battle. So they reach out to Jephthah, the same man they drove away. So they go to Jephthah and they offer him a job. And Jephthah's reaction, I would probably have the same reaction. Why me? You hate me. You drove me out of my father's house. Why do I want to go to battle for you? And the response from the elders was, we really want you. And if you take this position... We will make you head over all of us. Wow. That got his attention. Now keep in mind, 
kind of think about David here. David never took positions. David is given positions. We think about last week with Abimelech, right? He wanted to take the position of leadership. Here, it was given to him. It was offered to him. So they offered him this position of leadership. It caught his attention. So he went from nothing to a worthless fellow to leader over Israel. Why? Because he had faith. So what is the plan? How does Jephthah move forward from here? Well, Scripture tells us, as we look in verse 9, it says, Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, so think about what I talked about as far as humbleness goes. Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, if you bring me home again, go back home, to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, the Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all of his words before the Lord at Mizpah. So why is he in charge? He was offered the position. But did he sit there with a cocky attitude? He's like, you're right, I'm your guy, you want me. That wasn't his attitude. What, in fact, did he tell them? If you bring me home to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. If the Lord gives them over to me, who's in control? God is. Interestingly, in true leadership fashion, Jephthah doesn't rush into the battle as we continue to read down the story. He first tries this political approach. So he's given the credit to God. If God gives him victory, then he's given credit to God, then he'll be the leader. But as far as the leadership goes, he reaches out to the king of the Ammonites. He's about to go into battle with the Ammonites, and he says, why do you want to fight me? Or he doesn't just jump into battle and start fighting them. He's trying that political approach at first. Why do you want to fight me? Let's just sit back here for a second. But the king of the Ammonites says, because you took my land. Jephthah, Jephthah knows his history. Jephthah knows the history of Israel. He's a, he knows scripture. And his, his response is actually quite, quite long. As I go through the text, it's really long. I'm not going to go through all of it. But basically, the king says, you took my land. And Jephthah says, no, I didn't. No, we didn't. He denies this, and he gives the whole history of the region, starting back some 300 years. And he explains, we just wanted to pass through this area, and while we were doing so, the king of Sion fought against Israel. Well, actually, had, they asked permission from the king of Sion. We just want to pass through. Will you do this? And the king of Sion said, no. And then the king of Sion took a battle against them. Man, they just wanted to pass through. But the king took a battle against them, and the Lord gave victory to Israel. The Lord gave them the land. He continues, Jephthah says, to the king and says, so, you know, 
We've had this land. God gave this to us for 300 years. If you had a problem with this, you should have brought it up 300 years ago. It's funny, but it's true. It's what the scripture tells us. You should have brought it up 300 years ago. And he continues and says, because of this, you are wrong for trying to bring war against me. But he says one other thing. Probably, you know, if he'd have just stopped right then, would things have been differently? I, I don't know. But he says one thing. He calls out the Ammonite God, and he tells him, hey, your God, Chamash, is he giving you this land? Our God, the one true God, gave us this land. And as he finishes, Jephthah tells the king of the Ammonites, let the Lord decide. Let the Lord judge this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Let's just pause for a second and reflect on where Jephthah's faith is. Who's really going to determine the battle? Is Jephthah determining the battle? No. Who's determining the battles in your life? Are you? Or is God? Right? God is good. And there's some challenges at times. God knows exactly all the battles that we face. Do we put our faith in Excuse me, God knows all the battles that we're going to encounter, and when we encounter them, do we try to solve these battles on our own, or do we go to God to help us through these battles? You know, it reminds me, when I look at what Jephthah's comments here are, it says, you know what? Let God decide who the winner is. And it reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And what they told King Nebuchadnezzar when they wouldn't bow before him, he said he's going to throw him into the furnace. And their response to the king was, if God wants to deliver us, he will. If he does not, then we die. Is that our attitude? Or is it God doesn't know what he's doing, he needs my help? Right? Who's in control of our lives? So back to our story, the king of the Ammonites, of course, did not listen to what Jephthah had said. He's like, you know what, we're going to war. And what we read next is that the spirit of the Lord came over Jephthah. And it says in verse 29 of chapter 11, it says, Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and he passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. Keep in mind, Gilead is where the Ammonites had raised their troops. So the spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And again, it's one of those like, wow, could the story just end there and we know how it's going to finish? It's not. Because then, then Jephthah did something that we all do. He tried to make a deal with God. You know, up until this stage, Jephthah has been a man talking of much faith. However, he now just has a brief moment of weakness. He says, okay, God, if you do this for me, then I'll do this for you. He doesn't use those words, but that's basically what he's saying. And how many times do we do that? When we're in trouble, when we're faced with perhaps the consequences of something we've done, do we say, God, will you just rescue me? Will you just save me from this? I know I did this. I know I shouldn't have done this. 
But if you do this, then you know what? I will read my Bible every day. I will pray every day. I will go to church seven days a week, right? I will faithfully do these things for you. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. We try to earn our favor from God by works. That's what those things are. But our works don't save us. Faith saves us. Our faith is played out in obedience, not in works, right? What has Israel's problem been this whole time? The fact that they're not working for God? No. The fact that they're not being obedient to God. They're not being faithful to God. They're turning to other gods. They're not trusting God. God simply, they repented, right? What was their repentance? They started being obedient. They put aside the other gods. They started being faithful and worshiping the one true God. They started being obedient. That's what God wants. He doesn't want our works. But we have to keep in mind, our faith is played out in obedience, not in works. And there's a difference. God is not some puppet on a string where if we do this, then maybe God will do that. We sometimes try to control God that way. You know what, if I do this, well, you know what, I know God says not to do this, but I really want to do that. And maybe if I do this, but then I go do this, he'll forgive me. Right? Isn't that what the whole Reformation was about, or part of it anyways? Like, we're trying to buy favors from God. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but then I just go and confess to the man and say some prayers or something like that. And maybe he'll forgive me then. I don't really have true repentance, right? Just I just do all this stuff, and he'll forgive me. Or if I buy this thing for the church, or if I do this, right? God doesn't want that. He wants our obedience. He wants our faith. So do you do things because God tells you to do them or because or leads you to do them or because you're trying to earn faith, right? We all, I mean, we are part of a body here and God has a job for each of us, right? Why did God save us? Because he's got something he wants us to do. Now we can try and take it upon ourselves, like, well, I'll do this for God, I'll do this for God, I'll do this for God, but that's, that's not what he's asking for, right? He's looking for obedience. We go down the paths that he leads us or the paths that he think, we think he leads us. And if not, then we say, okay, God, do a little course correction. If this is not where you want me to go, then kind of guide me somewhere else. Where is it you want me to go? But we're always seeking the answer from God on where we should go and what we should do. And we all have to do certain things. The kingdom, right, there's many parts to the kingdom. There's many parts to the church. And we all have a purpose here. But we have to make make sure that we're doing them for the right reasons because God's leading us to do those things not because we're trying to earn favor from God to do those things. You don't want to break your heart. There's no special place. Like, man, if I do nursery, then maybe God will do this for me, right? It doesn't work that way. So the Spirit of God came upon Jephthah in a moment of weakness. As we come back to our text, this is what Jephthah does. He makes this crazy vow. He says, if you let me find victory then whatever comes out of my, the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace, I will offer it up for a burnt offering. 
If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. So as the text continues, we see that God allows Jephthah great victory against not only the Ammonites, but but against 20 cities across the region. God has, in fact, delivered Israel. God God has delivered Israel through Jephthah. So in victory, after the battle, the scripture tells us, Jephthah returns home, and as he is returning home, his daughter, his only child, comes out to meet him in celebration with tambourines and dancing. What was the vow? Jephthah remembered his vow to God in anguish, and he tears his clothes, and he explains to his daughter that he is, she has brought him very low, and he cannot take back his vow. And she agrees with him and asks that she be allowed to go off with her friends to weep for her virginity for two months. So again, what was the vow? What was the vow? That whatever comes out of my door when I come return home, I will offer as a burnt offering. What comes out? His daughter. We can try and make some parallels here with another sacrifice that almost happened but didn't. But keep in mind, this is, this is a rash decision that was made, a rash vow that was made by Jephthah, trying to secure God's promise. This wasn't something that God said to do. He just did it, trying to earn favor. In verse 39, we read, And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. And she never knew a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughter of Israel, that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gilead, four days in a year. So what was lamented? So we've got to think about this, because this text, I'll be honest with you, this is a challenging piece of text right here. It was very challenging for me, and I lamented over it for a couple of weeks. Like, how am I going to explain this one? So what was lamented? So let's reread that passage. It says, at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. And it became custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel would year by year lament the daughters of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days a year. So what was lamented? You know, the fact that he made a vow and that she never knew a man is what I'm reading here. But, but personally, let's, let's own this for a second. Let's think about this. If you were given two months to live or a very short period of time, she asked for the two months. If you were given a very short period of time to live, what would your mourning be over? What would you be sad for? So there's two schools of thought here as I read through this scripture and as I have studied this scripture and scholars upon scholars have debated this piece of scripture. Did he sacrifice her, burn her, burnt offering, which, by the way, would have been against Levitical law? It was forbade. Or did he sacrifice her slash consecrate her to a life of service to the temple? 
much like what happened to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 1 by his mother, Hannah. And again, we don't know. What was it that she wanted to mourn? Her life? No, her virginity. Right? She wanted to go off with her friends like, hey, this is, so this is a tough piece of scripture. But I'm not going to spend all kinds of time and you can text away. And, and I, I tell you, I've read both schools of thought on it again and again and again. But it's not the point of the story, so let's not get caught up in it. What is the point of the story here? We can't buy favors from God. Why is this here, right? God wants obedience. Jephthah says, hey, if you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And he came to regret it later. You only had one child, meaning there's no more children. There's no more legacy to be passed on after this, regardless of what had happened. So our story now just turns a bit. It kind of ends there. But then we jump into chapter 12. And again, we've got to keep in mind in the original manuscripts, there was no chapter 10, 11, 12. This is one continuing thought. So we continue now with the story of Jephthah in chapter 12. And, and it says, you know, of course, Jephthah has found victory against the Ammonites. But then the men of Ephraim have come to confront Jephthah. Now we've got to keep in mind who Ephraim is. And it's one of the tribes of Israel. So here we have brother against brother, if you will. It's not really brother against brother, but tribe against tribe. But you get the picture on this. We have these three chapters. And what is the focus of these three chapters? Again, it's like, wow, who is God? It's God's faithfulness. It's obedience to God. That is all about God and our faith. But let's read chapter 12, verse 1. It says, The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon, and to Jephthah, they said, why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down with fire. This is not the welcome wagon, right? This is not the welcome to the neighborhood club here at all. They are, they are of the same tribe. They are the same chosen people. Why did you fight them without us? We're going to burn you down. But let's set some context on that. In verse 8, I'm sorry, in chapter 8 of Judges, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, meaning Gideon, What is it that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. So they did the same thing to Gideon. Like, hey, why didn't you call us? And they're attacking Gideon verbally, saying, hey, why, why not here? So there's a, there's a consistent behavior we have for Ephraim, right? They always show up to the party late, and then they get mad about it. And so here they're threatening Jephthah and saying, we're going to burn your house down. Well, Gideon was able to walk them off the cliff with words. In chapter 8, Gideon had showed them, it's like, hey, you know what, how much more does, does Ephraim have than Gideon has? Like, you know what, guys, you already got so much, so just... Let's just back off here. And of course, he walked them off the cliff. Jephthah, we got to keep in mind, was that mighty warrior. So when we go to, to put it back on Ephraim, he says, I'm sorry, Jephthah says to Ephraim, when we called you, so Jephthah says to Ephraim, when they attack him, 
when we called you, you didn't come, but God gave us victory anyways. So why are you coming to fight me? So Jephthah then gathers all of his men in response, and Ephraim insults him and calls him a fugitive. Now you got to keep in mind, what's, what's Jephthah's background here a little bit, right? Born of the prostitute, he was driven out by his family, and only invited back to bring victory. So, so here's Ephraim just insulting him, and Jephthah's like, not going to happen. So they go to battle. And of course, God allows them victory. Matter of fact, God allowed them great victory. Scripture tells us that 42,000 men of Ephraim died. After the battle, there were many men from Ephraim. The scripture, as we continue to read it, tells us that there were many men from Ephraim that tried to escape and cross over to join over at Gilead. But as they did that, they were caught and they were tested. And what would happen is the people of Gilead would test them and they would ask them to pronounce the word Shibboleth. It's right there in Scripture. And if they pronounced it correctly, they would let them in. But if they pronounced it Sibboleth, then they killed them. Because the Ephraim, the people from Ephraim couldn't pronounce that SH sound. They couldn't handle it. So they pronounced it wrong. I guess it's sort of like, is it Camp Lejeune or Camp Lejeune? Is it Beaufort or Beaufort? Well, I guess it depends on where you're from. But it actually brings up our third point. Hmm, how are you getting a point out of that one? Our language gives us away. What comes out of our mouth gives us away on who we really are. Every day we have these conversations with people around us. Some of these are directly, some of them are overheard. People hear what's coming out of our mouths. So what are people hearing that's coming out of our mouth? I have to ask that question as well. I have to be very careful. We are set, or it's coming, the question is, are we set apart? We're called to be holy. Does our language or what comes out of our mouth reflect that? Or are we trying to fit into the world around us? We all have some very demanding jobs in a world that does not tend to honor God. Back in the days when I was teaching high school and in the summer I was working construction and at the end of the summer, boy, I tell you, this is before I became a Christian. So the way I talked at the construction sites did not mimic the way that I talked in the classroom. It was a very different world, and it was one of those things that I had to be really careful of when I got into the classroom. But similarly, do we not do the same thing? How I talk at work, well, no, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to talk at church the way that I talk at work, right? Is that us? What are we reflecting? What's coming out of our mouths from the people around us, whether it's our neighbors, our family, our coworkers? What's coming? When we're talking to the person at the restaurant, 
are they seeing God reflected in what's coming out of our mouths? Or are, are we being a Karen? Are we really being a jerk? Right? Are we trying to demand more? Are we trying to be ugly? Or are we glorifying God with what's coming out of our mouth? Luke chapter 6 verse 4 says, The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, produces good. And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. What's coming out of our mouth? So again, with Ephraim, who they really were, it was easily identified. Who we really are identifies us as well. What is it that others see or hear from us? The end of chapter 12 finishes just as it did in the previous chapter with the succession. Jephthah only ruled for a period of six years as judge. He was followed by Isban, who ruled for seven years, and then Elon for ten, and finally Abdon for eight. So Israel had a judge for a period of 31 years, and things went well. Next week, we'll start over again. So this morning, where is your heart this morning? Who are you trusting for victory in your life? Are you turning to the world around us? Or are you looking for salvation from the one true God? Do you realize that it's more than just about this life? that we're talking eternal life now. What's going to happen on that day when you are confronted? Are you going to be able to stand before God? Is it time to repent? Is it time to say, wow, are my eyes finally open to who God is and the fact that you need a Savior just like the rest of us? Are you willing or are you ready, if you have not already done so, to humble yourself before God, who is gracious to forgive, but does expect obedience. It's not works. It's obedience that follows through from a strong faith.